When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the British Royal Fanatic Podcast. I'm Hayden, your American friend with a passion for British Royal history. Y'all, we tried. (laughs) Uh, A few days ago, I tried recording the very first video podcast, and it it did not go over well (laughs) between issues with my camera setup, uh, the editing software wasn't doing what I needed it to do. It was just just not a good situation. The universe ultimately decided that it didn't want this episode to be our very first video episode, but not all is lost. I'm still in the process of getting better editing software. The YouTube page will be set up by the time Uh, the next episode comes out and actually this audio will be up there on youtube so not all is lost we're still progressing as we said we are i'm still gonna meet that promise to y'all that we are gonna start having video content but the good lord had better plans for this episode it was not supposed to happen as a video episode but our next episode the one at the end of july continuing the series that we're starting today that will be a video episode so not all is lost get ready for that one but before we get into today's episode please take a moment and head over to the official podcast blog that is british royal fanatic podcast.wordpress.com i still notice a lot of you are reading everything which i appreciate but not a lot of you are actually subscribing or following to it uh setting up the email list whichever avenue you decide you want to do there's still more of you just watching the content and reading it instead of actually following it and subscribing to it so please take a moment it doesn't take long if you could go ahead and do that i would greatly appreciate it i recently went on a little trip to st louis and in the town neighboring st louis st charles they have this cute little british shop and i got some wonderful things especially something to help me celebrate the platinum jubilee that i'm excited to share with all of you that's going to be on the blog so don't miss it Uh, please head over and subscribe or follow the blog whichever fits your fancy but on to today's episode One thing that we have always done here at the podcast is we've reviewed royal media. We've taken time and broken down some film. We've looked at interviews. We're beginning to look at television shows. Documentaries are going to be down the line. But one of the things that I've always really enjoyed doing on the show and all of you have seemed to like it as well is reviewing royal media digesting it trying to figure out the truth you know using my background in music and theater to really help digest it to try to better understand it well today we are going to begin tackling the gargantuan show that is the crown the crown came into the world in 2016 has completely turned the head on royal documentaries even though the show doesn't try to be one, but royal content in general. It's completely twisted everything on its head and opened up this completely new area that really hadn't been done before, or at least to this large of scale. The show has gotten so close to the sun that even the royal family tried to have a disclaimer put out on the most recent season, 
season five is going to be coming out in November. So to get ready for season five, not only are we going to be looking at the crown, but we're going to begin a larger series of other royal film, other royal television, and just take some time really reviewing royal media and bridging the gap between these fictitious depictions of things in actual history and try to figure out the middle ground here. How true to life is this? So buckle in. Without further ado, we're going to look at The Crown season by season. In this episode, we are starting with season one. Season one of The Crown, of course, as I said, entered the the, the lexicon in 2016, in November of 2016, and it completely ignited a new generation of royal family enthusiasts, those that really started to turn their heads and actually look into the annals of history and try to, you know, again, it sparked this whole new generation of fascination, both with its history, its scandals, of course, big members of the royal family like princess margaret queen mary princess diana they got even more people curious about them this show has won countless awards and it has highlighted a lot of the more painful parts of royal history that we're not going to skew away from in our review of it the royal the show has gone on record saying that it is not journalism and it's not trying to report on fact it is Uh, Peter Morgan's interpretation of this and the history that, you know, the show takes place around and in. So that's one thing that's really unique about the show is it's actively informing that this is not the truth. This is a depiction of it. It's a certain avenue of it. And most people understand it. But with the most recent season, season four, they... The show kind of hit a few nerves and the royal family actually tried to intervene, but they were unsuccessful. Of course, this show is the love child of Peter Morgan. If you have seen the 2006 film The Queen, that is another one of his works that is truly wonderful and truly marvelous. But season one of The Crown. On IMDb, season one has an overall score of 8.5 out of 10. It has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 88% on their tomato meter, 95% audience rating, and cites that the average critic score is 77%. This season alone has won countless awards for costuming, visual and special effects, casting, cinematography, editing, best period drama, best and outstanding drama, and a whole smorgasbord of individual awards actually won by Claire Foy and John Lithgow, and other nominations for Vanessa Kirby, Jared Harris, Matt Smith, and many more. There's, in fact, a whole Wikipedia page dedicated to the awards that The Crown has been nominated for and the awards that they have actually won. And this show has been nominated for enough awards that even I didn't know some of them. There were some award categories and um, just awards in general that I had no idea existed. So it's really interesting to see truly how far this show reaches when it comes to awards season. So, already a theme in progress, this is a fictitious retelling of history. What is the crown? The crown centers around Queen Elizabeth from just before her reign started, when she was just Princess Elizabeth, just the Duchess of Edinburgh, um, not sure when she was going to actually take the throne, to as close to modern history as we can get. Now, the show is not going to actually get to modern day. It's going to stop at, you know, the early 2000s. 
they did have a casting call out for uh Catherine Middleton so you know we'll see truly where the show starts truly where the show ends but that is the sort of blanket term of the show it follows the reign of Queen Elizabeth II it follows what she's done some big historical events but the big thing that the show does is it is these personal family moments it is this fictitious interpretation of what happened behind closed doors what truly happened at this prime minister meeting what happened over here what happened over there and sort of taking a stance with certain things that in some cases doesn't depict the royal family in the most positive light but each season roughly covers about a decade give or take season one the season starts in 1947 with her wedding to prince philip and it ends roughly give or take around 1955 um the goal this season specifically is to focus on the change from young naive princess housewife mother of two to the queen it is a lot of this personal struggle this personal balance trying to get settled into her marriage and some of the issues that begin to form dealing with you know now she's head of the family making some of these decisions she's now you know the government's in her name she has you know a lot of learning that she has to do and this first season really captures just that learning process where she begins to come into her own by the end of the season but there's a lot of really difficult decisions that need to be made now our core cast members of the show we have queen elizabeth ii is played by claire foy prince philip well at the time he was just philip the duke of edinburgh he had yet to get that princedom which is played by matt smith Princess Margaret is played by Vanessa Kirby. King George VI is played by Jared Harris. The Queen Mother is played by Victoria Hamilton. Queen Mary is played by Dame Eileen Atkins. And Prime Minister Winston Churchill is played by John Lithgow. Now, John Lithgow is the only, um, I believe he's the only American to be playing a British character in the show. Now, this season, it was filmed in conjunction with season two. So this same core cast will, um, of course, be in season two. We already know this, but they filmed them back to back, which is interesting. So this main core cast, aside from those that die off or just disappear because they're not relevant to history anymore, um, would do show up in the next season, which goes into the mid 1960s. Now, this season in particular was 100% written by uh, Peter Morgan. There was a rotation of directors. They rotated between three different directors for the show. If you can hear that purring, it is our lovely mascot, uh, Prince Margaret. (laughs) He's been really rambunctious as I've been trying to record, but I'm I'm talking about the crown, little one. Do you have anything to say? There we go. Such a wonderful mouthful. But I'm going to get back to the episode now, okay? So back to what I was saying. Season was 100% written by Peter Morgan. And in turn, there was just a rotation of directors that would direct certain episodes, especially if they were more personal or dealing with a larger bit of history. They you know had a huge set. There are a lot of extraneous factors as to why there was a rotation of directors. Now, into some of the the behind-the-scenes stuff, which I really, really like, before getting into some larger opinions about the show, is 
they, of course, could not use real royal residences for the show because that's just simply, they just can't. Uh, government wouldn't allow it, the royal family wouldn't allow it, so they actually used a lot of real historic homes owned by aristocrats or peers in place of these royal residences, or they built things on the soundstage. One thing to note is that the um, bedroom area of Buckingham Palace, so where the Queen's bedroom is, where Philip's bedroom is, where their like dressing room area, the like lounge type area that they're in. But those, while all uh, on a soundstage, are actually based on the real blueprints of Buckingham Palace and what they would at least be largely laid out as in real life. So that's something that's really interesting that the set team did that's, of course, carried around through, uh, through each season. So while the private areas of Buckingham Palace, the bedrooms, the sitting rooms, all that are built on a soundstage, they are based on the real layout in the palace, which is something fun to keep to keep in mind. But the real locations that they used in the show are, um, of course, our tried-and-true Lancaster House. Lancaster House made an appearance, of course, in this show, and it's really interesting to see how Lancaster House is used in place of Buckingham Palace, but much more of Lancaster House was used this go-around um, in the show for Buckingham Palace. In fact, the only area of, uh, that isn't a soundstage or Lancaster House is the sitting room that the Queen uses for her meetings with the Prime Minister. That's not actually a private home, but I couldn't figure out where that was. There was a blog I found years ago that said what it was. I couldn't find it for my research for this episode. But Lancaster House, of course, stands in for Buckingham Palace. Lie Cathedral, which in addition to a soundstage, was the stand-in for Westminster Abbey that was used both for the coronation and for the wedding. London's um, Southwark Cathedral was a stand-in for St. George's Chapel. Greenwick Naval College was used for the courtyard and like the front entrance area of Buckingham Palace that has since changed, that is now being used, that is now done with a soundstage. Goldsmith Hall was used as the room for the operation hall for King George VI when he had his loan taken out. Beaver Castle and Burley Hall were stand-ins for Windsor Castle, and High Cannon's house was used for Clarence House. And everything else was shot on a soundstage. Or, again, other homes were used that uh, IMDb, Rotten Tomatoes, and other blogs just either didn't pick up on or they've been buried by the Google algorithm that I couldn't 100% find. But those are some of the big notable uh, locations that were used for the show that actually still, that still stand. They still appear in the show. So now... Time to get into the minutiae of the show and things I really love discussing about The Crown is the show takes a lot of liberties, and they do so very deliberately, and they do so very intentionally. Of course, it'd be incredibly boring if it was just a retelling of history. That is, you know, <laughs> that's not what we're here. We're here for drama. We're here for, you know, the show to take a little bit of, you know, pull some punches, take a stance, and that's what the show does. And the big thing that I've already said before is that the show tries to explain what happens behind closed doors what goes on in these, you know, private prime minister meetings. All we know is the record that they happen. There's no script. There's They're not recorded. These private meetings, these private family moments, these intimate, you know, settings where the public isn't privy to, the public doesn't know these things. It's, you know, how they're functioning in their day-to-day lives. Or 
behind the scenes of these really big historical moments to try to again color in what might have happened here you know what could have possibly happened and so one of the things that I like to think about is that they're trying to give these characters, these, you know, characters based off real people, they're giving them a character arc. They have to have some form of change or progression. They have to have an arc. We have to also inform character traits and character decisions of these real life characters very quickly. And of course, they're often exaggerated. There are some people that know history, like me, like some of all of you listening in, but there are those that don't necessarily know history, that they have to inform the greater character. And so certain liberties are taken to inform the larger character traits that the show is picking to exaggerate, picking to highlight. And so certain liberties are taken. Now, one thing that the show does not change is the historical events that happen in real time. Those we, we cannot change. But where the show changes are the little details. My friend Liz from college put the crown in this wonderful analogy that it's she taking the coloring book of history and just paint, uh, picking different crayons to color within the lines with. Or sometimes they don't color in the lines at all. But, you know, the general outline stays the same. But the finer details are truly what's different about the show. Now, there are notable real events that do happen that the show folds in to its own storytelling. What are just some of the real events that happened in season one? Well, we have right out of the gate Prince Philip giving up his, you know, Greece and Denmark citizenship. He gives up his HRH and Prince title of Greece and Denmark. He completely renounces all of that, his connections to the Greece and Denmark royal family. He... Um, in turn, you know, becomes a citizen of the United Kingdom. While he gets his own HRH, he doesn't outright get a princedom, and he, in turn, upon his marriage, gets his dukedom, his earldom, and his barondom. And then, at that point, the next day, he becomes his royal highness, the Duke of Edinburgh. He is not a prince again, just yet. Of course, the wedding of, at that point, uh, Lieutenant Philip Mountbatten, and then Her Royal Highness Princess Elizabeth. King George VI having his lung surgery and his eventual failing health. Of course, the death of Queen Mary, the death of King George VI, the big tour that Philip and Elizabeth go on on behalf of the king, Princess Margaret and her relationship with Group Captain Peter Townsend, the great fog that happened, Winston Churchill's health issues and, you know, what he chose to share, what he chose to hide, the issues over the house name, where they were going to live, the coronation, and of course, the relationship with His Royal Highness the Duke of Windsor, his wife, the Duchess, Wallace Simpson, and still the animosity felt towards the abdication. So those are the big pillar moments of the show, big moments in history that they do not change, that they include anyway. Now we're going to get into some things that the show changes, where it alters from history that some things aren't necessarily that big of a deal, but some things are a big of a deal that the show paints the royals in a slightly different light, but they do it to inform the larger character. The first one we're going to talk about is Prince Philip and the Coronation. In the show, Prince Philip is seen not only the one who brought in the cameras, tried to modernize it, did the best that he could, but he's seen having this really big argument with 
um, Queen Elizabeth about, you know, his role in the coronation and the idea of him bowing, where it seems to them, you know, really at a standstill that, you know, the Queen's taking over duty, the, the Prince Philip is really headstrong and set in this, you know, I, you know, I shouldn't have to. And they have this big, you know, argument in Westminster Abbey. In reality, that didn't happen. That argument did not happen. And in fact, when you look objectively, when you watch documentaries about the coronation, that's one thing that he knew he couldn't change. And he was completely actually on board for. He grew up, you know, he grew up royalty. He grew up in royal circles. He did spend time over with the British royal family. Um, His family, of course, has connections to it. So his family and his upbringing, he is aware that this is something that needs to happen. He wouldn't have argued, and in fact, he didn't. There are a lot of sources in these documentaries in my research that have all corroborated the same story. Yes, he was headstrong. Yes, he was, you know, quite the character. But there are some things with tradition that he knew to not mess with that he had to do as consort to the queen. And he wouldn't have argued. He knew that, yep, this is my role. This is what I'm to do. So that's the first thing that they do. Take a little bit of artistic liberty there. But they're again informing that Prince Philip is this, you know, headstrong, set in. This is what I want to do. The next one that I actually have a little bit of a problem with is the whole handling of Prince Margaret and Group Captain Peter Townsend. Of course, this storyline did exist. Princess Margaret did fall in love with the group captain. They did have an affair. His wife did end up leaving him. And they tried really hard to make it work. The group captain was sent over to Brussels in hope that, you know, the weight would, you know, throw them off the scent. They really, really wouldn't want to do it. But ultimately, they still really loved each other. He's a divorcee. She's a member of the royal family. And the threat was real that... She would have to give up everything in order to love him. And ultimately, the queen comes in and says, you know, you can't do this. And it further, you know, drives a wedge between the sisters. And it was the queen who told her no. When in reality, things were different. Um, In reading uh, 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret and Lady in Waiting, My Life in the Shadow of the Crown by Lady Glen Connor, she really helps, Lady Glen Connor specifically, really helps color in how this story ends and that they actually really tried to make it work when also you look objectively at history there's record that you know the queen and uh, the privy council were actually trying to come up with ways for margaret to keep her position to keep her place within the line of succession her money from the privy purse to keep her hrh and her princess title and you know keep everything and still marry him But in reality, it was actually Margaret and group captain Peter Townsend. They came to an agreement. Whoever had more say will never fully know because, you know, they're both since gone. But they ended up making the decision for them. The queen was actually still advocating for Margaret. But history is different. The show took a stance of, you know, dividing the sisters, which the show's largely doing is that, you know, the queen has this dead set, you know, as a sister I approve, but as the queen I can't, you know, this idea of duty, this whole perspective of duty and duty to the crown, and, you know, Margaret being this rebel, basically the polar opposite of her sister, that's what the show's trying to inform, and they're choosing to alter history this way to help tell that story, where... It could be actually slightly more powerful, in my opinion, if they did follow through with how history truly was, 
where the queen is you know trying really hard to get the uh margaret what she wants but ultimately margaret decides mm, no enough time has passed we've changed too much yes we still love each other but that spark that certain something just isn't there anymore and you know they address it they actually see each other quite a few times after they decide to not fully marry and so he goes back to brussels he marries who he eventually marries margaret eventually marries who she marries and history continues as you know as such but the show could have done that to you know take a unique stance that you know margaret while being this polar opposite of the queen still actually had a sense of duty within herself and there are little bits of the wedding they actually chose to leave out of course there's where the tiara broke somebody forgot the queen's pearl necklace at one point there were missing bridal bouquets there were certain chaotic things that did happen that the show just left out because at that point it's those aren't necessary for for the storytelling but they did leave out some of the more chaotic things at the at the wedding another thing that is really unique that the show adds that was never there was the letter from Queen Mary to the young Queen Elizabeth II. The show sees where when she lands in London after the king has died, and she gets a letter from the queen saying, you know, there will be two Elizabeths that you'll constantly be dealing with. Elizabeth Alexandra Mary, you know, Elizabeth Mountbatten, and Elizabeth Regina, the queen. You're, they're going to be in constant battle, but the crown must always win. You can't, you need to separate dalliances indulgences you need to be able to separate it's duty and crown before all and in reality this letter never happened there was never a letter like this there's no record of a letter like this happening this is truly the show adding and fabricating things but what is the show doing to us the viewer it's painting you know that the queen it's the queen is now at at a crossroads where she's now the queen of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth, but she's also still this very young wife, this very young mother. She's now the head of the family, and it's it's visual storytelling of the crossroads that she's at. And in reality, that um, that letter never happened, but it's, you know, the conversation that they have, you know, it does slightly boost the ego of the British monarchy in some ways, but it, it underlines that, you know, duty before all, and again it's a way for us to further understand the crossroads that she's at the show again adds more things very first episode we see the king coughing up blood into into the toilet it's 1947 in reality he was not that sick at that point he was never that sick to where he was coughing up blood he wasn't coughing up blood already that they you know (laughs) they accelerate history a little bit and why are they doing this Again, we have to put our context hats on. There are some people that don't know history that the king got sick. The king, you know, was in failing health. He was smoking a lot, which ultimately led to cancer. And one of the things when reading the big objective biography by Sally Bettle Smith, by reading Little Princesses, by um, their former nanny, Croffy, in reading, you know, My Life in the Shadow of the Crown, one of the things that's always highlighted is after World War II, the king never looks the same. He's thinner, he's gaunt, he looks tired all the time. And, you know, we're entering the show already in post-World War II Britain, but it's, you know, very only two years post-World War Britain, World War II Britain. And 
you know, the show is trying to inform, okay, the king's sick, the king's, you know, but but and then we're moving on. It's to inform, you know, people that don't necessarily know history that, you know, the king's not necessarily in the best of health at this time. Uh, Winston Churchill never had an assistant named Venetia Scott. She never existed. This is solely here to give the character Winston Churchill a character arc. Um, London already had poor air quality at the time of the Great Smog. And in fact, um, uh, so (laughs) when the smog did, did appear, they wouldn't have reacted so extremely. And in fact, they wouldn't have reacted until weeks later. And at that point, people were really getting sick and dying. So again, the show took artistic liberty with the episode about the smog. But it again, it's not necessarily about the smog per se. It's, you know, putting Prime Minister and Queen at odds and showing that, you know, the Queen is developing and Winston Churchill isn't doing his job as Prime Minister. That's what that episode is truly meant to inform. Um... In this first season, the Queen and Winston Churchill are sort of put at odds against each other, and they sort of provide each other's character arc, where the Queen is becoming stronger into her into her own, she's becoming more confident, and she's taking a stance with her with her prime ministers. Winston Churchill's getting old, he can't do his job anymore, he's, you know, taking you know, lying behind her back. They're providing each other with their own character arc, but in reality, they actually had a really good rapport. And there's many times where the Queen has said that her favorite Prime Minister was Winston Churchill. So the show, again, is taking liberties here to provide character arcs for the show. A show without a character arc would be incredibly boring. So that's what the show's doing. Uh, The show does uh, insinuate that the Queen had a crush on Lord Porchester, a.k.a. Porchy, who um, eventually would then become uh, the Earl of Carnarvon. But in reality, she truly only had sights for Prince Philip. Her, she tried to go on, you know, these little dates and dances, you know, just to be social. But truly, in reality, Prince Philip was the only, truly the only one for her and the only one she had sights on. So there's no substantial evidence to support that she had a crush on anybody else. You know, if she had, you know, fancied someone else, it would have been a very, very quick thing, very fleeting fancy, because again, her heart was only in one place and it was for Philip, which is, you know, kind of romantic. But what the show's doing with this storyline is highlighting, you know, some of the issues that the young marriage had there at ends with one another. Philip's not around. He's maybe having an affair. You know, we don't know for sure, but she's feeling alone. And so she's leaning into her horse racing. And who's there? Lord Porchester Porchy. So those are some of the larger moments where the show takes a stance and actively changes history. They're, of course, smaller, minute details, but those are the ones that really stood out to me or to critics, the ones that critics had a really big issue with. Critics had a huge issue with the fact of, you know, the king coughing in 1947, Venetia Scott never existed, Philip would have bowed and he actually had no issue with it. Um, There really wasn't a lot of talk amongst critics about the Princess Margaret storyline, and in fact, that one (laughs) was the one of the ones that was accepted as biblical truth. What if you look objectively at history, you'll know that it's different. Where does this season excel? The costumes, the jewels, those truly you know, chef's kiss are fantastic. The royal jewels are replicated so beautifully. Even if they don't look 100% accurate, they're easily, you can 100% identify 
what these jewels are. The costumes are great, both being period accurate, but also unique to the, if the character where Princess Margaret has one style of wardrobe, the queen has a different. They're very visually different to inform, you know, through sartorial messaging, they're different. The jewels, it's just, I cannot praise this season enough for the costumes, the jewels. It's one of my favorite parts of the show, trying to pick out what jewels they're, uh, trying to pick out what jewels they're using in certain scenes. Um, and this one is truly wonderful in terms of the jewel replication. It's, you know, chef's kiss, fantastic. The gown replications are really good. We're going to get into one that's truly magnificent in a moment, um, Another thing where the series truly excels, this season specifically, is the relationships between the characters and the true work that the actors did. It's, again, they got nominated and won awards for a reason. It's the acting when there's you know, no talking, when it's, you know, the facial expressions and these private moments, you know, when Margaret's having a breakdown or... You know, the scene that's standing out to me immediately when recording is when Prince Philip learns that the king's dead. And the private secretary has just informed him he knows Princess Elizabeth, now queen, is all excited. You know, oh, who's here? And then that moment across the lawn where, you know, they're not saying a word, but their faces say everything. And truly these young relationships where, you know, emotions are really heightened you know, the crossroads that the queen's put at as mother, person, wife, but also queen, head of the family. It's the acting is truly stellar. And they're all the nominations and everything, you know, they 100% deserve. The show's like a masterclass in, you know, body acting, you know, facial acting, you know, how things, scenes can be more powerful when there's actually no words spoken and it's just truly how you embody the character you know you know tip i tip my hat to all of you the casting excels they took some risks i wouldn't have thought jonathan lithgow playing you no know, winston churchill would be something i would see in my lifetime but it works it works it you know it paid off and you know, it was a unique take but, you know, I personally think it was wonderful. He brought something different to the table. You know, in interviews, he even, you know, didn't think he would get it, but he did. And, you know, he tried really hard. You know, of course, everybody loves Gary Oldman as Winston Churchill. But this, again, this was a different interpretation of uh, Winston, Winston Churchill. And the interiors of the show, both made for a soundstage and the real ones that they used again could not be better and it really again helps set the scene for what you know it further makes the show believable it further grounds the show being in these really antique grand interiors you know the muted color palettes you know the huge grandiosity of buckingham palace of hi can you not do that hi can can you can you not do that can you not do that of, you know, these grand interiors, these grand spaces, it helps, again, make the show feel real, makes the show feel believable, makes the show feel grounded, and that is something that is, again, really unique to the show, that they used so many real interiors and blurred the line with the soundstage interiors. You know, if you watch, there's an architecture digest where they break down, you know, 
how you can tell if it's a soundstage or if it's a real interior. And, you know, even still with that knowledge, I still sometimes can't even um, figure out which is the real and which is the soundstage. So good on them for really, you know, doing their work there. Some fun facts about the season uh, to talk about. Uh, Princess Margaret and the Queen, in reality, were almost the same height. Princess Margaret was actually a little shorter, maybe like one or two inches shorter. But the actresses, the actresses Vanessa Kirby and Claire Foy are nowhere close to to the same height. Vanessa Kirby is much taller than Claire Foy. So what they did is that any scene where they were together, Vanessa Kirby's in flats and the Queen... Claire Foy is in heels to try to make their heights closer. And that's one of the things that Lady Glenn Connor was really critical about the, you know, the role of Princess Margaret of Vanessa Kirby is that, you know, seeing this really tall Princess Margaret, you know, kind of messes with, with my brain a little bit. You know, she was never that tall. Um, additionally, in terms of height, Jonathan Lithgow, 6'4". John Lithgow is really tall. Winston Churchill was about my height, 5'7", five, 5'8". Five, and because of this, they actually had to spew some of the lines of 10 Downing Street, especially that front door, in order to, you know, try to get the, you know, sight lines right, try to keep things, you know, somewhat close to, you know, perspective. But John Lithgow was a very, is very tall. Winston Churchill was not. This show is, of course, one of Netflix's most expensive to create, and I think it still holds the record for being the most expensive show Netflix has, has made. The coronation dress worn by Claire Foy is actually a replica that was originally commissioned by Harrods for a celebratory window display for the Queen's Jubilee in 2012. The dress was made and is still owned by uh, Angel's Costumes, which many of the costumes for the show came from. They happened to have it. It was on a mannequin. It's mannequin size, and it fit Claire Foy perfectly. So they were able to use this almost, you know, to a T replica, certain embroidery techniques were different. Instead of being sewn on, they were iron-ons. But, you know, that coronation dress, you know, was a complete find that was used for the Queen's Jubilee for it for a display. Claire Foy is, of course, four years older than Vanessa Kirby in real life, which is actually the same age difference between the Queen and Princess Margaret. So that's just, again, something a little fun. This next, this next fact is something that's truly interesting, and if you're a fan of British programming and British <laughs> British drama such as me, you recognize this character, uh, the character actor. Alex Jennings plays the Duke of Windsor, and he um, previously starred as Prince Charles in the 2006 film The Queen, which was, of course, directed by Peter Morgan, which, of course, was written by Peter Morgan. Jennings also played King George III in Liberty, the American Revolution from 1997, and King Leopold I of Belgium in uh, the series Victoria in 2016. So he's played a lot of royals, especially, you know, playing Prince Charles, George III, and now the Duke of Windsor, you know, the abdicated Edward VIII. And I think in likeness, you know, as he's gotten older, when you look at him and the Duke of Windsor from that exact same time period, it is a very good likeness. That was a very, very good casting choice. And the last fun fact of this show, the last fun fact of this season, is that this is the only season that the real queen, the real Her Majesty the Queen, has watched all the way through. She watched season two to a point, but then she stopped after they took 
they took too many liberties and she didn't agree with it but this is the only season the queen has watched through and through other royals such as uh, princess eugenie other royals, notably Her Royal Highness Princess Eugenie and Her Royal Highness the Countess of Wessex, actually still watch the show. Uh, but the Queen has watched this season, and she said that she really appreciated it and, you know, understood what the show was doing. So now on to my thoughts. We've talked a lot about what the show got right, what the show got wrong, Um, Fun facts about the season specifically, locations that they used, strengths over all of the show, casting, the purpose of the show, what it's doing, other little fun facts. But now what do I think of the show? I love this season. This season is actually one of my favorites. I've watched this season probably the most, and it has become comfort television for me. Um, I think that this season is the one that the royals feel less threatened by. Um, because it's so far removed from history, and it doesn't really touch on a lot of controversial topics yet. It doesn't really do much to paint the royals in a bad light yet. The Margaret thing, you know, they took liberties there, which I'm still a little bit perturbed by, because they could have done something different with the character of Margaret in doing so. But this season, I feel the royals feel the less threatened by. Uh, I wish, uh, some things that I wish they would have changed was is just the Margaret thing. I really wouldn't change much about the season because they did so much so beautifully. Um, I do wish that they, you know, maybe did a little bit more into the abdication, just again, highlighting truly how much that really damaged the family. Again, everybody who's watched the um, the King's Speech knows how truly damaging the abdication was who you know have you if you've done your homework you truly know how much this truly hurt the family and the show does do things at times to highlight you know you know but that's just me being picky in this season because it would have set up season two a little bit better but we're going to get to that in a minute um but the show's flawless i love everything about it this is you know truly you know it's become comfort television for me I cannot wait for season five. This season and season four are tied for my favorite seasons. Um, And I'll go into why when we get to the season. But this one, why is this one my favorite? The costumes are fantastic. The settings are great. The writing is very compelling. The acting and the direction the actors got is really good. It's a truly well-made um it's truly a well-crafted piece of, of of art in some regards. They got so much right, and what they do choose to change still feels believable. These characters feel believable. The characters feel grounded. The characters, even the choices that alter from the path of history, still feel grounded in the character, which is why so many people accept the show as biblical truth. Um, these The decisions that are different still feel believable but there we have it a fun wrap-up of season one my favorite season of the crown truly fantastic you know hats off to you peter morgan you did such a great job and i can't wait for season five but tune in in um two weeks where we will delve into season two into more conflict and sort of the royal soap opera that begins to form that we now know of today My sources for today's podcast are IMDb, Rotten Tomatoes, 
Wikipedia, Suggest.com, Reader's Digest, FindThatLocation.com, RadioTimes.com, BT.com, and Architecture's Digest. If you made it this far, thank you for stopping by the podcast today. I really appreciate it. If you would like to suggest topics for future episodes, let me know how I'm doing, or just, you know, would like to write into the show, you can drop a line over at the email, BritishRoyalFanPod at gmail.com. There's our official blog, BritishRoyalFanNaticPodcast.wordpress.com. There's our Twitter, at Fanatic underscore Royal. There's our, our Facebook page, the British Royal Fanatic Podcast. All of our socials hit hit me up over there things are growing things are expanding join the family you're more than welcome if you would like to donate to the show you can do so with the one-time paypal donation linked on the twitter page any donations would be greatly appreciated it can help <laughs> make this content the best it very can be head on over to wherever you're listening to rate review subscribe and share the more you do the more people can see the show the bigger the family can get and the more opportunities we can have i'd like to have more guests on the show Have a great rest of your week, everyone. Stay safe and stay healthy out there, and I will see you in the next one.